morning. You are here. You made it. Um, I apologize for not sending out focus questions. I've had a doozy of a couple weeks. Um, But I hope you were able to sit in this section in Isaiah. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? And I actually felt like the study guide led us through it beautifully this week. Some of the most beautiful and comforting words in scripture live in this section where we've lingered this week. Words of promise and hope that we know well. When we feel vulnerable and tender, we hear a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, Isaiah 42.3. And when we need hope that something new is indeed possible, we find these words. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth and I tell you them, Isaiah 42.9. And behold, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah 43, 19. And when we feel overwhelmed, or when fear or despair, or even the feelings of being forgotten fill us, we find some of the most reassuring words given in all of scripture. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Isaiah 43, 2. All of these words are within this small section that we've journeyed through this week. And it's as if at this point in the prophetic message to a people exiled and feeling abandoned, despairing and wondering where God is in the midst of all of it, it's as if the Holy Spirit unleashes on Isaiah these amazing words. Remember that all these words are prefaced by the words that Bev shared with us last week. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. And that is exactly what God is doing with these words of hope and promise that fill this section. Giving both comfort, consolation, and filling us with strength. This uh, understanding of comfort that Bev gave us last week that I loved. These words in Isaiah, these various passages, have probably spoken to all of us at some point in our faith journey. For me, they hit me fresh in the face two and a half weeks ago. The same day my world crashed. Sorry, this is kind of an emotional talk for me. The day crisis broke open big and wide in my life. And I can't share the details. I trust that you can hold and honor that. But as I drove my Lily Joy to preschool that Tuesday morning, I looked up through my tears on the road and saw these words. Do not fear. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43.1. Of course, the tears started flowing more freely. I couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't even actually know this was the section I was going to be teaching on. But I couldn't believe it. This, like, black canvas, these white words on the side of this church that was not there the day before. (laughs) Staring me in the face. As if God knew I needed on that morning, of all the mornings, in that moment of crisis, I needed to hear from him loud and clear. What do these words mean? What do these words of comfort and hope and promise mean? How do they anchor us? 
What do they mean in our places of brokenness and pain, in crisis and in despair? Having had a couple of weeks to sit with them and the rest of the context in which we find them in Isaiah 41 through 43, those chapters, I hope to unpack them in a way that they're not just like endearing words, but like anchored in a deeper truth. As Bev shared last week, these words are spoken to a people whose homeland has been utterly destroyed and who are living in exile. You hear their despair in the words of Psalm 137.1. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. You hear it in the words of Isaiah 40.27 as Isaiah recounts Israel's complaint Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? These are their words. This is their complaint. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They are in exile, and they feel abandoned. They look around, and they wonder about their right. They wonder about justice. Is God no longer in the business of executing justice? Does God care about righting all that seems wrong? The people of Israel were in exile, and we ourselves have our own places of exile in our own lives, don't we? We each have our stories. And we can wonder at times, where are you, God? Have you ever asked God that? Are you there? Do you even care? It's into this place of despair of feeling crushed and alone and abandoned that Isaiah continues to speak in these chapters. Bev, in her wonderful talk last week that I hated missing, but I've listened to several times since then, friends, what a talk to go back to again and again. As she unpacked Isaiah 40 in the first half of 41, she asked this question, do we have a big enough view of our God? She noted that Isaiah is trying in this section to get the people to look up and see that God is so much bigger than the situation they are facing. And that theme continues in the second half of 41 as God brings the various deities of the day into the cosmic courtroom for trial. That's where we start off in our section. Set forth your case. Bring your proof. Isaiah, speaking for God, opens up in verse 21. And here, God is challenging the idols and gods of the day to, quote, tell the former things what they are or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do harm or do good. Here, God is challenging them. Predict the future. Tell me what's about to happen. Do something, anything to prove yourself. But there's only silence. These gods, these idols, are unable to give testimony. All that these false gods can give, all they can offer, is in the words of uh, verse 29. All they can offer is nothing, a delusion, empty wind. In contrast, God is presented as the one, capital letters, the one, acting decisively in the specific events in human history and specifically in the life of Israel. 
I stirred up the one from the north, and he has come, God says, speaking of Cyrus, who will conquer Babylon and be the one to allow the Jews to return home. God has ordained this and no other. He alone is sovereign. Any false claims by the nations and their gods of having power and authority have been silenced. All activity, wherever it is taking place, is under the control of the one and only God, the Holy One of Israel. And then on the heels of this declaration of God's sovereignty over human history, we hear for the first time in Isaiah 42, the first of four servant songs. Here in the words, behold, Chapter 42 starts off with these words, behold, a word meant to get our attention or we're communicating something significant and new. God introduces his servant. Behold my servant. And he says four things about him. God upholds him. God has chosen him. God delights in him and God's spirit is upon him. These are the markers of this servant. And it is clear that this is a different servant than the one Isaiah has been talking about before in chapter 41.8 and that he will speak of in 42.19 and 43.10. There is a servant spoken of in those places, but they are clearly identified as who? Israel, my servant Jacob. But here, Isaiah introduces a different and new servant. And this servant, in contrast to the empty winds of the idols the Israelites have been turning to for help and aid, this servant is empowered by God's spirit, God's breath. The Hebrew word for spirit also means breath and wind. It's the same word used in 41.29 to speak of the empty wind of idols. It's ruach. Here, speaking of God's servant, this wind is anything but empty. It is a powerful force. And in the power of this spirit, breath, wind, this servant will bring justice to the nations. That is this servant's mission. Justice. The very thing that God's people have lodged against him in complaint, right? You have disregarded our right, our justice. It's the same Hebrew word, mishpat, used in both places. And here it is clear that God has not forgotten or disregarded justice. In fact, that is precisely what God's servant is here to accomplish. And so... Three times in four verses in chapter 42, God reiterates this. This servant will bring justice to the nations, verse 1. He will faithfully bring forth justice, verse 3. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, verse 4. Just in case we're unclear about what he's here to do. Justice. Justice is the whole purpose of this servant, and making things right. Isn't that what justice is? Making things right. But greater than just making things right for Israel, the plan for justice is for all the nations, for the whole earth, as verse 4 proclaims. 
And so the God, the passage goes on, who creates the, created the heavens and the earth, who gives life to every human being and sustains their very breath. This is in verse five. Remember, remember the bigness of our God. Remember who he is. This God who has done all that will accomplish it. This servant figure will do what Israel could not. He will uphold the covenant God has made with his people. Verse 6. And the servant isn't just an ideal, but a real person who is God's answer to the weakness and failure of his people. He will be a light to the nations that they have failed to be. He will open the eyes that are blind. He will bring prisoners out of bondage. And he will set free those who are in darkness. And we now know that Jesus is the new thing that God was declaring here in Isaiah 42. Jesus is the fulfillment of these words, the one foretold by these servant songs in Isaiah. So what else can you do but break forth in song? Right? An announcement to this new thing that God has declared in verse 9. There is a new song that Isaiah begins to sing in verse 10. He sings a song to this God who, though he will come in tenderness and gentleness, not overbearing and a different kind of power that will not break the vulnerable or snuff out those who are barely hanging on, as he spoke about in verse three, he will be gentle and tender, but he will be like a warrior stirred up for battle. He will be zealous. And like a woman in labor, the text says, though God has seemed silent, He knows when the time is best to give birth, to exert himself, to bring forth his purposes to ultimate fulfillment. Isaiah, having addressed his praise to God for this servant to come, then comes back down to earth and speaks yet again to Israel's failure to hear and to see in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 42. He reminds them, That the fall of Israel and the subsequent exile that they've experienced is not a failure of their God, but a result of their disobedience. Here in this section, we see yet again God's judgment. God's people have been deaf to his word, blind to his purposes. Captivity in Babylon was not a result of God abandoning them, but of their abandoning their God. The truth is, sometimes we can never know the comfort and love of our God until we have faced up to our own sinfulness and repented. And that is what Isaiah is calling them to here. He ends chapter 42 with these words. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose laws they would not obey? So he, God, poured on him, Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Here we see the ways that God's people have been rebellious and unrepentant. But God's purposes are always to lead us to repentance isn't it? Judgment is God's love to wake us up to our need for him. As hard as that can be to stomach sometimes. 
And so we get right after these words of judgment and anger. But now. After stern words of rebuke, Isaiah in the very next breath offers words of hope. But now. But reorients everything. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And what does he say? Fear not. Fear not. Why? Why do we have nothing to fear? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Even in our disobedience and rebellion, God continues to be the God for us. Listen to the number of eyes of God speaking on his behalf, eyes in this passage of what God is saying he has done for us. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored And I love you. I give men in exchange for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you up. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who calls by my name, is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Did you hear it? The number of eyes. The number of times that God claims himself as the acting agent in this passage. I am, I will, I give. Why has God done all this? Why does he tell us twice, twice, fear not? The reason lies in the very heart of this section in Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. At the very center of these promises about the ways that God will care and protect and provide is the most tender personal confession from the heart of God to ours perhaps ever in scripture. A confession that reveals the basis for God's creative and redemptive purposes and acts that have been sung about in the servant song. Why? Verse 4, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. Can you hear that? I love you. This verse is grounded, is the very ground of Israel's and our confidence. We are loved by God. And this last phrase, I love you, is profound. The verb translated as love is is used to speak of the love a husband has for his wife. It's with that kind of personal and intimate 
endearing, enamored, friends, enamored love that God loves the people of Israel and us. Friends, this alone is our reason to hope. Not in a God's, for God so loved the whole world. I think we can hear that verse and it feels like a general proclamation, but in a personal way, God says, I love you in the most pure and enamored and just head over heels in love for you, love. And that alone is the foundation upon which a life can be built. As we hold our pain and our heartache and the suffering we endure in this life, the reason Israel and we can hope for a future beyond the tragedy we face is this remarkable promise. It's because, friends, you are precious in God's sight and honored by him. And God says to you with the emotion and intention of the most intimate lovers, I love you. Friends, people who are loved like this have absolutely nothing to fear. People who are loved like this have nothing to fear. Two and a half weeks ago, I felt like I was going under. Places of pain and suffering and hopelessness I had lived with for almost two decades broke wide open. It seemed that Babylon had swept through and I sat along the rivers and wept. But friends, it was in this place of hopelessness and pain and despair when a situation in my life had hit absolute rock bottom that amazingly and supernaturally God did a new thing. In places of sin and rebelliousness and blindness, hearts were softened and repentance occurred. And places of darkness were exposed to the light of God's judgment and truth. I quite honestly feel like my life has moved through this passage in the last three weeks. The fear not from Isaiah 43.1 that greeted me on that Tuesday morning my world crashed has given way to Isaiah 43.19. Behold, I do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And I can say to you, friends, do not underestimate the love of God for you and his persistent, wise, and unrelenting work to bring about freedom and wholeness and goodness in your life. Do not underestimate it. Even while the people to whom Isaiah spoke waited in hope for this servant to come who would accomplish all this, we on the other side of the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that our God has indeed accomplished it. He's done what he said he would. And he continues to do what he says he will do. We each have our stories, don't we? I've been a little bit more vulnerable without details of mine this morning. And at times, our Babylons can be a reality so terrible that we can despair, like the people of Israel. Friends, I know places of exile and despair. If I can give you no other assurance, it is this. We have the certain knowledge Certain knowledge that the powers and forces that are at work in our life for our destruction, 
that brings suffering, our own sin and the sin of those around us that impact us. These forces, they are not absolute. There is a reality far greater. It is the reality of God's absolute sovereignty and his unswerving commitment to his people. This God who has declared to you and to me, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. This God also says to us in these words in Isaiah 43, 11 through 13. Listen to this. I, I am the Lord. Twice he has to say I to emphasize it. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand, none that can take from God. I work. Who can turn it back? Friends, this section in Isaiah calls us to remember like few other places in scripture does. Remember who your God is. Remember the bigness of your God, upon whom the universe depends, and by whom all the nations and all human events are directed. It may seem at times like others control the fate of humankind when we look at the world or in our own lives. But here in Isaiah, we are reminded who actually runs the world, who is actually sovereign. The Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Remember that this sovereign God is the God who reaches out in love to his people and says to you, do not fear, for I am with you. You are precious, you are honored, you are loved. If we could just sink into this truth that we are loved, I think everything would change. I have a prayer I've created and printed out that I set before me in my quiet time place. It's this one on your table. It feels appropriate for the month of February. Lots of hearts. I have it in my quiet time space framed. It's a very simple prayer. Open my heart to your love. I feel like if I could just keep going deeper into that prayer... I would be standing on solid ground. It is in the continual opening and deepening of our understanding of God's love that we find ourselves living the truth that we truly have nothing to fear. It is from that place of knowing that we are absolutely, deeply, completely, crazily loved by our God that quiet trust can spring up a confident belief that the suffering and turmoil and brokenness in our lives, those exile Babylon places, are ultimately drawn together in a purposeful whole that is accomplished by the justice of our God, the making of all things right, rooted in his love. The God who is indeed faithfully bringing forth justice, who is making all things right. Our study on day three asked this question and looking back over these verses in Isaiah 43, 1 through 13, it asked this, which part or parts of these verses do you most need to hear today and why? I hope you will sit with that question in your group and in the days to come. 
these assurances in this section, these promises that we have clinged on onto for who knows how many years, these verses that are just a place of anchor for us, they are rooted in the absolute sovereignty of our God and in the absolute love of our God who moves us to a different place in our life if we can just anchor there. Moves us away from fear and anxiety and restlessness to a deep abiding peace and confidence that we are held on our good days and our absolute worst days when our world seems to crash down. The truth of God's love changes everything, friends. It roots us in God's goodness, his care, his intention to save and redeem and restore things that look beyond saving. It is really true. People who are loved like this have absolutely nothing to fear. We need only to look for the new things that God is doing. And so hear these words. Close your eyes and take them in. The hope and promise of our sovereign God who is always moving towards us in love. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise.